millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, everyone. I hope you're well. To help support the making of this podcast, please sign up to my Patreon site. And for a small fee, uh, you'll be showing your support of this podcast. Uh, but as a Brucey bonus, you get to see new videos every week and they're packed with history and commentary about the, the state of the nation and the state of the wider world, and lots more besides. It's called Neil Oliver on Patreon, and I'd love to see you there. In the meantime, here is the next episode of my love letter to the British Isles. Cue the music. Some of the most skilled and courageous seamen the world has ever seen or ever produced. They were going out into the great unknown just to see what was there. So, yeah, brave. Definitely brave. In this podcast, we're setting sail on a journey that influenced the world. A hand-built vessel. Small, tiny, by today's standards. 70 feet long, 20 feet wide and weighing around 150 tonnes. But, small or not, it was the flagship of a squadron of five vessels, and it was the only one to return. A perilous voyage of exploration and combat, heavily laden with gold, silver, pearls and precious stones, Francis Drake, the skipper, returned to a hero's welcome and the admiration and thanks of his queen, Elizabeth I. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil. In the previous episode you took us to a heart-stoppingly beautiful landscape which in one gruesome day broke the heart of a nation. Where are we now? We're climbing aboard a ship that sailed around the globe and into history. In what was then an important east coast port, 16th century shipbuilders there set to work building a vessel which Francis Drake took on an epic three-year voyage. He circumnavigated the world. We're in the beautiful Suffolk town of Aldborough. We are in Aldborough, which is a little seaside town in Suffolk. Throughout my 
love letter to the British Isles, there's lots of reasons, countless reasons why I love these places. And in, in the case of Oldborough in Suffolk, on arrival, I remember the first time I turned up and it was just, for me, quintessential Englishness. And I say that as a, as a Scot, Scot by birth and, and raising, and I've been all over the archipelago, that much is obvious. And yet, and yet, there was something about Oldborough. I just expected that somewhere there would be a poem about Oldborough by Sir John Betjeman or something. It, it just had that feel. Partly, it felt, in a reassuring and lovely way, it felt a little bit left behind by the modern world, but only in a good way. And it felt like the kind of place that... It is the kind of place that, that people maybe a generation or two ago would have gone for a, a holiday to be um, refreshed by the sea air and to take invigorating walks along the shingle and listen to the seabirds and, and just have a lot of the cares of the day washed away. It's that kind of place. So I, I loved it on sight. Needless to say, you know, it's, if it's in Suffolk, it means it's on the same coast as uh, Norfolk. Norfolk always comes to mind for me every time I do a love letter because of the very first one, which is Haysborough the million-year-old human footprints. And that part of the coastline in, in Norfolk, of course, we talked about how it's being really quite rapidly taken away and redistributed by the North Sea. It's very soft, the Norfolk coast. Well, Suffolk, for a lot of the same reasons, parts of Suffolk, Oldborough being a notable example, is also being consumed. And that thing that the sea does where it... It, it takes from somewhere and gives somewhere else. If your beach is getting bigger, if you're getting more sand on your beach, it means that someone somewhere else is losing theirs. And uh, in the case of Oldborough in Suffolk, it's definitely being ground away by the relentless rhythms of the North Sea. It takes its name, Oldborough, from the River Old, A-L-D-E, which flows, it flows out to sea at, at Oldborough, but it does a, a thing that you can only really appreciate from maybe an aerial view. The beach at Oldborough, it's a spit of shingle that runs parallel to the coastline and behind it is the river. The river is coming down, running behind this shingle and it eventually comes out to sea a little bit south of the town itself. And it's that kind of shingle it's difficult to walk on. It's that kind of grade of shingle that when you take two steps forward, you slide one step back. It's a small place. Its most famous recent resident is Sir Benjamin Britten, who's the you know, famous English composer. Uh, and he was born in Lowestoft, but he moved to Oldborough in 1947. And with some friends of a like mind, he set up the Oldborough Music Festival, and that's still ongoing. In point of fact, I went to Oldborough the first time uh, as part of filming Coast, the BBC television series. And we went there to highlight the fact that in this relatively out-of-the-way spot, there's a, a music festival that's been running for all these years. And it's appropriate because Benjamin Britten, he, amongst other works, he took poetry by a local, an Oldborough man, uh, an Oldborough-born poet called George Crabbe, who had written a series of poems called The Borough, about the sort of life and times of the place. And Benjamin Britten took one of them and turned it into Peter Grimes, which is 
for most people, unless you're a bit of an aficionado, probably be the only thing you would be able to name by Sir Benjamin Britten. And it's regarded as the finest English opera. So we were there to highlight that for Coast. So I spent quite a lot of time sat out on the on the shingle beach, listening with headphone earphones to uh, to bits and pieces of the of the music to get into the atmosphere of it. And it is very atmospheric. And if you listen to Peter Grimes, there in the background of it, literally and metaphorically, is the North Sea. So you know you you hear the rhythms of the waves, and you know you hear the the calls of the of the seabirds, and it's all there that rise and fall of the wind. And it's appropriate in every way because Albra is, is made by the rise and fall of the wind and by the rise and fall of the sea. And in due course, like everything else, it will be unmade by the sea as well. If the sea keeps rolling, then eventually Albra, <laughs> in centuries to come, will just gradually disappear. It is extraordinary how his music does capture the essence of the coast. It does. It does. I, I listen to all sorts of music, but I'm not a buff about any particular style of music. And there's some operatic work that I enjoy in amongst everything else, but I, I'm not, I, I don't feel qualified to speak about it. But if you do listen to it, then the North Sea is in it. And it's fun in a way because obviously people listen to it all over the world. You know, Peter Grimes has performed all over the place. And it's quite fun to think that whether they know it or not, they are listening to the North Sea. <laughs> Or the East Coast of England. So whether they know it or not, that's you know that's what's in it. So you know, Albra is this is this backwater now. But in the 16th century, so back in the 1500s, it was a very important port. We've talked already about Kings Lynn. Well, Albra was important also, and as well as being a port through which goods were coming and going, it was also about shipbuilding. And there's a fantastic map it was put together in 1588 right at the time of the threat from the Spanish Armada I mean that's not why the map was made but it, it was made at that time it shows Albra as a town with like four or five parallel streets one behind the other and all in line with the coast and there's there's lots of little illustrations of, of ships on the coastline and in the river behind the river's kind of jam-packed it's almost like a traffic jam of ships that were choking up the river so it was an important port and an important shipbuilding place. Eventually, the river, which was really its lifeblood, as well as the sea, obviously, but the river giving it that kind of protected access to the sea, it silted up as a natural process. And when the river silted up, that's what made it into a backwater. It fell from use in that way. But the thing to know about Albra is that a ship was built there that if it didn't change the world, it certainly changed in the 16th century Britain's attitude to the world. And it provided Britain with an idea. It began to kindle an idea that had us reach out into the wider world. The ship in question was originally called the Pelican, as in the seabird with the big beak. But in 1577, the keel, they call it the laying down of the keel. So the keel was laid down at Albra. Now the keel is basically a single timber that's put into position first and that obviously the rest of the, the timber ship is built like a rib cage off of that spine. So the keel was laid down at Albra and the ship, the Pelican, was seaworthy by 1577. 
And at that point, she was taken on as the flagship of a squadron of five vessels that were going to sail out and circumnavigate the globe. Right, now, in 1577, that's like Apollo 11. Yeah. In, in some respects, it's even more than that. But it's like shooting for the moon. It was an unthinkable objective in many ways. At that time, uh, there had only been one successful circumnavigation of the globe by sailing ships, and it was captained, well, famous that it was captained by Ferdinand Magellan, who was a Portuguese navigator. He led out a flotilla of ships to go around the globe. But what most people either didn't know in the first place or have somehow forgotten is he, he didn't actually complete the circumnavigation. His name is forever associated with the first circumnavigation, but he died on the way. Shouldn't laugh. Uh, but he was a very um, bellicose individual, a, a terribly strict disciplinarian, which is the sort of person you need really to keep order aboard these kind of ships for that kind of voyage. But halfway around on some islands, he, he got himself involved in local politics and led a skirmish and got killed. And in fact... The circumnavigation at that time was completed by another mariner called Juan Sebastian Elcano, who eventually took over the control of the flotilla. Finally, it was a single ship that made it back that had actually been all around the globe. So, if you like, the person who first circumnavigated the globe, in that he was there at the beginning and also there at the end, it was Juan Sebastian Elcano. So that was the context in which... Um, the Pelican and the rest of the vessels set out for this adventure. As you might be able to imagine, it was actually the flagship, the Pelican was the flagship of Francis Drake. There's a name of English and British legend. Drake's a good name for a character like him. It comes from the same root as Dragon. Uh, Drac, Draco, Drake. He was a charismatic figure. So he acquired the Pelican and his principal sponsor for the whole exercise. The guy who had offered him up the most money was a chap called Sir Christopher Hatton. And Sir Christopher Hatton had in his family crest a gilded female red deer. So Francis Drake took the pelican and in honour of his sponsor renamed her the Golden Hind. Because a hind is a female deer, a gilded deer, the Golden Hind. Technically, this ship that had been built at Olbra was a galleon. By modern standards, it's terrifyingly small. It's 70 feet long, 20 feet wide, and weighing 150 tonnes. She was five decks deep and had three masts for sails, so tiny. And 70 feet long, I can tell you, amongst other things, I was part of a, a seven-man crew. We sailed a 50-foot yacht from the Falkland Islands to Antarctica. Wow. That yacht was 50 foot. It's called the Pelagic. And I can tell you, I know how small 50 feet is. Yes. Uh, and there were only seven of us aboard it. So this vessel, the Golden Hind, was only 70 feet long. So unbelievably tiny. And I'll leave it to your imagination to think what the standard of accommodation was like aboard for those who were there, cramped and miserable. So it was heavily sponsored. And he was also encouraged very much by his queen, Elizabeth I, to see if this was possible, because England was a country on the make, and by that time, the Spanish and the Portuguese were heavily involved in what was the new world. You know, they were heavily involved out there, and Queen Elizabeth wanted in amongst it. 
Uh, so she was very keen that Francis Drake get underway with this. So, so off they went. They set sail first to South America. So they went across the Atlantic through the Magellan Straits, the Straits of Magellan, named after that Portuguese mariner. And then they were into the, the vastness, the great blue eye of the Pacific Ocean. And by that point, by the time Drake is aboard the Golden Hind coming out of the Straits of Magellan into the Pacific, he's all alone. The rest of the flotilla of vessels had either been lost or had turned back. Are the Straits at the bottom of South America? Yes, yeah, the, 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 the Straits of Magellan, for people who were in the the terrifying business of trying to get around the bottom tip of South America from the Atlantic into the Pacific. It was dangerous. The whole thing was dangerous, but the weather could be... The further south you go into the Southern Ocean, the more dangerous it becomes. And so the Straits of Magellan let you cut off the tip. They let you turn through. (laughs) They let you sail through from the Atlantic to the Pacific earlier, which is what you want to do. So it cut days, sometimes weeks or even months potentially, off of a voyage. west coast of South America was Spanish you know it had been since it was discovered and it was known to be rich gold and silver and all the rest of it and on the 1st of March 1579 so two years into the voyage Drake captured the Nuestra Señora de la Concepción which was a, a Spanish ship that was so loaded with treasure it took Drake's men days to get the gold and, and the rest of the wealth aboard their ship and then By the time he was through into the Pacific, he claimed part of the coast of California for Queen Elizabeth. He called it New Albion, which is to say a kind of a New Britain. So this little ship, this little 70-foot long ship from Aldborough, it sailed eventually as far north as Vancouver Island. And then they turned back, so they came back south again, down the Californian coast of America. They were in San Francisco Bay, and then they set out on the terrifying odyssey across the Pacific, then into the Indian Ocean. And then they finally they rounded the Cape of Good Hope, which is the bottom of Africa, uh, and they returned to Plymouth. As it says in the, in the logbook, very richly fraught with gold, silver, pearls and precious stones. Now, get this, get this. This is unbelievable. The profit from the the voyage for the sponsors was 4,600%. Wow. Right. That's that's how well it had gone. Queen Elizabeth, now she may or may not have actually offered up money. She may just have provided it with her official blessing, but she might have invested in it. It's hard to say. But in any event, she pocketed. She trousered a great deal of the profit that came back off, but so much indeed that she was able to pay off England's national debt in one go. Just from the just from the contents, just from the cargo hold of that one ship, and she was was also able to start what was called the Levant Company, which was another of these companies where she invested in those who were ready to go out and set up trade with, in this case, the Ottoman Empire and the countries of the Near East. Uh, so that's the Eastern Mediterranean and out into the you know what we would regard as into the Middle East. And it's for all of that that she then famously. Whether it actually happened or not, it's hard to say, but the legend has it that she stepped aboard the deck of the Golden Hind, this little ship that had been built in Aldborough, and uh, there she knighted him, Sir Francis Drake, which, frankly, sounds like the least she could do. So, 
Like I say, you imagine the significance of getting a man to the moon. 1969, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, Michael Collins, you know, they got the three-man crew that, that get Apollo 11 to the surface of the moon. Against all the odds, really, a huge investment and a great deal of personal bravery. Well, the Golden Hind, as far as I'm concerned, did something at least as significant. To go out at that time in the 16th century and sail around the world. I mean, at least as, as everyone knows, you know, if you've watched something like Apollo 13, you know, where that voyage to the moon gets compromised. But they're still able to talk to Earth and get help. They're still able to get all the advice they need from back at Mission Control. We couldn't do that aboard the Golden Hind. Once they go, they're gone. They were out of touch in a way that even people going to the moon in the 1960s weren't out of touch. So when they set sail on that circumnavigation, they were gone. And they were gone from everybody's sight and consciousness until they came back years later. How long did the voyage last? They're gone for three years by the time they get back. You know, which is considerably longer than anybody took to get to the moon and back. And the loss of life and the, the hardship, you know, the suffering and the fear, the ever-present slow-burning fear and anxiety for crewmen in these situations where they're entirely reliant upon their own bravery, their own ingenuity and a good dose of luck. But, but in any event, so it was and so they did, you know, that... The Golden Hind, it changed English, British consciousness because it showed what was possible. It's, it's like Roger Bannister running the first four-minute mile, if he did. I'm quite sure he didn't. I'm quite sure somebody else, somewhere else, a long time before him, ran a mile <laughs> quicker. But <laughs> Roger Bannister's the name that's associated with the four-minute mile. And once he did it, everybody started being able to do it. It was a paradigm shift. It showed that it was possible. And once someone shows that it can be done, then it becomes a hundred times easier for the next person to do it. And that was what the Golden Hind did. When Drake came back, loaded his ship sitting low in the water because it was so full of gold, it made it that bit more possible. And of course, as we know, I mean, that was the latter part of the, the 16th century. And we know what happened next for Britain and the British Isles and what became the Royal Navy. Britain's impact on modern history and Britain's impact on the world was founded upon mastery of the world's ocean. It was founded upon that confidence and then that growing ability of some of the most skilled and courageous seamen the world has ever seen or ever produced. But the door, the door into that world of potential and possibility was opened a crack to let the light in by Francis Drake and the Golden Hind, the keel of which was laid down in little sleepy, almost forgotten Aldborough. It's incredible to think that the ship that went on to shape British history began life in what is now a small fishing town. Yeah, I, well, I'm always amazed. I, I always find it very fascinating and, and often satisfying to follow big stories all the way back to the beginning because the ending is, is often the most famous part of it of the story 
And people have heard of the Golden Hind and Sir Francis Drake and sailing around the world. People know about that. But sometimes it can be fascinating to follow that story all the way back to its beginning. You have to ask the question, where did this start? And to some extent, it was the seaworthiness of that ship. It was the only ship that made it back. Five ships set sail and only one came back. So you'd have to attribute some of the success, some of the success to the seaworthiness of that ship, built as the Pelican, but but renamed the Golden Hind by Francis Drake in honour of his sponsor. So it was a good little vessel, apart from anything else. And if you follow its roots all the way back, its keel was laid down in Alborough. And and Alborough at the time, was it mattered. In those middle decades of the 16th century, in the way that places like Glasgow and the Clyde became synonymous with shipbuilding in the 19th and 20th centuries, well... In the 16th century, it was a place like Alborough. If you wanted a ship built, you might well go to Alborough in in search of the craftsmen and the shipwrights that could do that job for you. And I I always find it, it's important and helpful and instructive to be reminded that other places mattered. We talked about how 5,000 years ago, the Nessa Brodgar, you know, might have been the capital of the British Isles. It might have been one of the most important places there, but now mostly forgotten. Well, a shipbuilding port like Alborough in the 16th century was on the lips of anyone that, that knew anything about sailing, about anyone that knew about this emergent adventure of taking great ships to sea. And it's important to pay attention to that because they're forgotten now. And so the important places that we are preoccupied with at the moment, you know, like London or, or New York, some of them will always matter, but others will fall away. Some of them in their time will become backwaters and their big contribution to the story of the world will be over. Just as the story of Alborough is now all but forgotten by all but a few. At this time, were sailors still worried about there being a flat earth? There's a great deal of myth around that. It's fun to pretend that everyone thought the world was flat until Christopher Columbus sailed across the Atlantic and bumped into the West Indies. But the reality is that, to some extent, our species has always known that the world was round. In the 6th century BC, Pythagoras knew or had worked out that the world had to be shaped like a ball. And then Aristotle said the same, I think, in the 4th century BC... Eratosthenes in the 3rd century BC, Ptolemy, the Venerable Bede in the 700s. They they knew, and they wrote down the fact that they knew the world was round. For example, if you were to look up at any point in the last many tens of thousands of years during an eclipse of the moon, you would notice that the shape of the Earth's shadow is curved. Anyone observant would say, the shadow being cast on the moon is ours, and it's a ball. Our species likely always sensed, and if you stand on the, sh- on the shore anywhere and you watch a, a ship approach from behind the horizon, the tip of its mast appears first, and then as it gets closer you see more and more of it, so you can work out by observation anyway that the world is round. But, but, having said that, there was still a huge amount of ignorance about the reality of what planet Earth actually looked like. Right up into the time of, of people like Columbus and later, 
Everyone, even the most educated, believed that Jerusalem was the centre of the world. There was the Mediterranean Sea, and then there were just three continents kind of radiating out, hanging off from the Mediterranean, which was Africa, Europe and Asia. That was all they understood of the geography of the world. So when they were embarking on these voyages, like that made by Columbus and Drake and the rest, they were massively voyages out into the unknown. I mean, they didn't know the American continents were there. North and South America, no idea of the existence of those until they started bumping into them as they tried to sail into the West to get to Asia. And lo and behold, there were two massive land masses. So, yeah, I mean, in answer to your question, the bravery, they were, they were, they were leaping into the dark. They were going out into the unknown. They didn't think they were going to fall off the end of a flat world, but they were going out into, into the great unknown just to see what was there. So, yeah, brave. Definitely brave. Mary, Queen of Scots, lost her head to the Executioner's Axe and England faced the threat of a mighty invasion fleet. Elizabeth I travelled to Tilbury Docks to deliver a rousing speech and to put steel resolve in her troops as Sir Francis Drake set sail to meet the mighty Spanish Armada, bent on conquest. Next time, in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast, which is and always will be free, and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. Be lovely to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. Social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. Finance is taken care of by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.